This episode is brought to you by Vimeo, home to the world's best filmmakers. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I am Emily Buder. And I'm John Fusco. It's March 2nd, 2017. And on this 50th episode of the show, why the big Oscars gaffe was an object lesson in producing, some indie insights into the Academy and Film Independent Spirit Awards, how to make your actors cry in the good way, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. As mentioned, it's our 50th episode. Happy birthday to us. Are we 50? Yes. This is 50. To help us celebrate, we hope you will subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It really helps a lot. And again, as we've done before, we really want to thank you guys all for being along for this ride helping grow our audience and giving us feedback that helps make every show better. We love you. Here's to 25 more. (laughs) (laughs) So there's pretty much no way that you don't know that the Academy Awards happened this past weekend. And of course, we're going to talk about them. And of course, we have to start with the big drama of the evening, the big surprise. And that is, of course, that Suicide Squad is now an Academy Award winner. Wah, wah. What? <laughs> I just came out from under my rock to hear that? <laughs> you just came out from under the rock to hear that? <laughs> okay. I I'm hope re- that more people go see it now, you know? Yeah, no, that, that best makeup award is usually very influential. Um, I'm just kidding, though. What I'm really talking about, of course, is the fact that La La Land was announced as Best Picture winner, and some people, like John Fusco, went to bed thinking that the film everyone thought was going to win... La La Land actually did win. I was tired. I was Aww. tired of La La Land. Oh, just Aww. kidding. Anyway, in the middle of the acceptance speeches, it was revealed that, in fact, the incorrect envelope had been opened and the best picture was actually awarded to Moonlight. All of the mainstream publications have analyzed this moment to death already, but as usual, we're going to look at it from the independent filmmaking point of view. In this case, I want to bring up a point made by our writer, Chris Boone, about the way La La Land producer Jordan Horowitz handled the gaffe and handed the prize over to the Moonlight team live on stage in front of millions of people. That is a good producer. It was amazing. Yeah, that's about to be my point. Chris made the point that this moment was basically an object lesson in independent film producing. Warren Beatty, who had originally incorrectly presented the award, and Jimmy Kimmel, who hosted the show, are professional entertainers who've been in front of countless audiences, but neither of them seem to know exactly how to handle the situation. Horowitz, who presumably is not used to having an audience, clarified the situation to the viewers, gracefully handed over the mic, and got out of the way. And as Emily pointed out, that's what a good producer does. Chris Boone's words were, A producer does a lot of different things, but probably the most important thing a producer does is find a solution swiftly when the shit hits the fan to keep the production moving. Horowitz got some major press himself after the incident, and his grace under pressure continued. He told the Washington Post, I want to make sure that we're all talking about the fact that a $1.5 million picture about gay black youth in America won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. That's a pretty sensational thing. And again, he's talking about Someone else's film, not his own. Even Moonlight director Barry Jenkins himself was surprised by this fact. The way the evening unfolded meant that Jenkins didn't get a chance to give his planned speech, which he later revealed to Entertainment Weekly. 
Referring to himself and the original Moonlight playwright, Terrell Alvin McCraney, the intended speech read, quote, We are Chiron, Chiron being the protagonist of Moonlight. The quote continues, And you don't think that kid grows up to be nominated for eight Academy Awards. It's not a dream he's allowed to have. I still feel that way. I didn't think this was possible, but now I look at other people looking at me, and if I didn't think it was possible, how are they going to? But now it's happened. So when I think of possibility, let's take it off the table. The thing has happened. Which brings me to our next point. Moonlight's win shattered all kinds of historic precedents. The list is astonishing. It's a true indie with a budget that's minuscule compared to the others in its category. It's the first film featuring a completely non-white cast to win Best Picture. It's also the first LGBTQ-focused film to win the prize. Actually, in researching the story, I was sure that Brokeback Mountain had won back in 2006, but it was in fact beaten out by Crash. Womp, womp, womp. Crash, crash, crash. Also, Moonlight star Mahershala Ali was the first Muslim American to take home a Best Supporting Actor award, or any acting award. And the film's co-editor, Joy McMillan, is the first African-American woman to receive an Academy Award nomination for film editing. The award actually went to Hacksaw Ridge, but still. For all these reasons and so many more, Moonlight, we salute you. When Terrell McCraney and Barry Jenkins were talking on a panel at New York Film Festival last fall, I remember McCraney said something really interesting about the universality of the film, and it preceded all of Moonlight's buzz, so it was kind of an interesting window into what was to come. Uh, What he wound up saying was, this is the world I grew up in. To make that real for people and myself again is kind of destabilizing. I'm still processing it. I could describe these things to you, but when you feel them, it's different. That's something that you can keep thinking about on the subway. If Moonlight is doing this to me, there's someone else out there that needs this too. And apparently, a lot of people did need this story. There were a couple other firsts this year. Ezra Edelman's O.J. Made in America won in the very strong documentary category this year. And this is unusual because it's actually an almost eight-hour miniseries that first ran on ESPN. On a similar note, both Amazon and Netflix grabbed their first wins thanks to Manchester by the Sea, which was awarded for its screenplay and acting, and The White Helmets, which was named the year's best short subject documentary. Look at this to be a trend that bodes well for indie filmmakers who may not get theatrical releases, but may likely have releases on some of these other platforms. Now, even more directly relevant to this particular podcast are the Film Independent Spirit Awards that happened on the day before the Oscars, and we covered them live on nofilmschool.com. In addition to Moonlight winning all six categories it was nominated in, including Best Feature, who were some of the other winners? Well, before I get into that, I'm going to talk to you about a thought experiment here. As Adam Gopnik pointed out in The New Yorker this week, the odds are more than a little overwhelming that we're living in a computer simulation and that the flub in the Oscars offers some great proof of this. You should go read the article. This is not a joke. It's been written about in The Scientific American and debated at length at the Museum of Natural History by philosophers and scientists. Wait, people, these philosophers and scientists actually believe we're living in a computer simulation? It's about um, the it's a mathematical equation that delivers the possibility that the the odds are overwhelming. It's kind of like thinking about intelligent life outside our own life based on like the number of exoplanets. It's more than overwhelmingly the case that there is life on another planet. Therefore, you know, it's that kind of math equation. Whoa. 
<laughs> so we could get we could talk about this for the entire podcast. But I mentioned this because in the event that there has been a glitch in the matrix of the universe, there are actually multiple outcomes for everything. And I mean everything. So you're probably wondering what in the diggity dang dong diddly this has to do with the Independent Spirit Awards. <laughs> I was. I was wondering exactly <laughs> what in the diggity dang dong diddly it had to do. <laughs> okay, so say we were living in a computer simulation. The Indie Spirits would be the optimal version of the Oscars. So now on to who won. Moonlight took Best Picture, Cinematography, Best Editing, and Best Screenplay. And Barry Jenkins took home the Best Director, rightfully so. The Witch nabbed Best First Picture and Best First Screenplay, and hot damn, that was an impressive debut, so it deserved both of those. Best Female Lead went to Isabelle Huppert, who many thought would win and should have won on the night of the Oscars. And everyone's favorite German wacko comedy, Tony Erdman, took home Best Foreign Film. So, as we predicted and then saw, the Oscars were not quite so white this year, but they were still pretty darn male. And following on Emily's point, the Spirit Awards may better reflect the world we'd like to be living in. So whereas the Academy has only nominated four women directors, four Oscars in its entire 89-year history, nine women directors were up for Spirit Awards in various categories this year alone. To that end, American Airlines announced a new award that they'll begin handing out at next year's Spirits. It's a $50,000 unrestricted grant called the Bonnie Award after their first female pilot. This will be given annually to up-and-coming women directors, and we'll keep you posted on the details as they emerge. Netflix won its first Oscar last weekend, but Netflix is hungry, and it's already gunning for its second Oscar. Last week, the streaming giant bought rights to Martin Scorsese's upcoming film, The Irishman, for $120 million. That price indicates Netflix has great faith in the film, as the production budget is actually approaching $150 million due to the expensive technology the VFX team will use to age its three stars, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci. When you say that they're aging them, do you mean like de-aging them or? They're aging them and de-aging them. They're going to be in the film at 30, 50, and 70, I believe. Mm, interesting. Yes. As I said, The Irishman will star De Niro in his ninth collaboration with Scorsese. He'll be playing the infamous mob hitman, Frank the Irishman Stearman. It's, so the movie's going to be based on a novel called I Heard You Paint Houses, which are a reportedly the first words Jimmy Hoffa said to Sheeran, and it's a reference to blood spattering the walls during a murder. You. Yes, that is a picture for you. Of course, Sheeran is likely responsible for Hoffa's disappearance. So, the plot thickens a bit. Just last week, a day before the Netflix deal was publicized, Scorsese told an audience in BFI in London that watching a movie at home was not actually, quote, the best way to do that. But there's more trouble in paradise. At Cannes last year, STX purchased worldwide rights to the film for $50 million. Now, of course, the distributor is embroiled in a legal battle with Netflix claiming that the New Deal impinges on their contract. Stefano Massenzi of Italy's Lucky Red, a sales company which purchased the Irishman for Italy, told Variety, quote, It's like you selling me an apartment and then saying someone else is going to move in. Yikes. And in sadder news, last week it was revealed that Seijin Suzuki died on February 13th in Tokyo at the age of 93. He leaves behind a manic, blood-steeped legacy that paved the way for directors like Park Chan-wook, Quentin Tarantino, and many others. Kill Bill especially would not be made if it weren't for movies like Suzuki's Tokyo Drifter. The crazy lighting, excessive, almost cartoon-like gore, and even the soundtrack come from Suzuki's influential style. 
This style is perhaps best described in an obituary by our own Greg Quick. He said, Suzuki communicated with chaos and would increasingly jettison narrative coherence as his films fractured and splintered into manic, blood-steeped art pieces. The stories progressed with the spasmodic geometry of crime scene splatter patterns. He used widescreen photography and deeply saturated colors to conjure dreamlike auras. His best films play like melanges of violence and sex with syncopated jazzy rhythms more mingus than Miles. That guy can write... Yep, and Greg Quick has a way with words. Yes, he does. Suzuki's films are truly unique in the canon of international cinema, though. That's to say he kind of created a genre all of his own, this hyper-stylized Yakuza gangster movie with flares of both spaghetti western and 60s psychedelia. If you want to check any of them out, many of his films are now on the Criterion Collection, including Story of a Prostitute, Gate of Flesh, Youth of the Beast, and his most well-known masterpieces Tokyo Drifter, as I mentioned earlier, and Branded to Kill. In his article, Greg recommends starting off with Youth of the Beast as an entry point, but I think you should just jump right in with Tokyo Drifter, especially if you're a Kill Bill fan. I finally got around to watching it one night after a really influential slash kind of crazy mentor that I had back in college recommended it to me. It took a few years for me to get to it, but I ended up enjoying it so much that I turned the night into a double feature and watched Drifter and Kill Bill back to back just to see how similar they actually were. There's no one else that has made movies like him, except for, of course, the people that are copying him. So definitely check out any of his work if you haven't seen it. Unfortunately, we lost another beloved Hollywood figure this week. Bill Paxton died at the age of 61 from complications following heart surgery. He was best known for his prolific work in the 90s in films like Apollo 13, Twister, and Titanic. But as our writer Justin Morrow pointed out, Paxton also had strong indie pedigree, One of his most memorable roles was in Sam Raimi's A Simple Plan. But perhaps his most greatest legacy will be one of his most overlooked projects, his directorial debut called Frailty. The low-budget psychological thriller in which he also starred is about a father whose religious delusions led him to acts of horrific violence. Paxson also directed and starred in a very early Saturday Night Live short called Fish Heads. It's experimental, surreal, and really funny, According to Yahoo, the cinematographer Rocky Shank and costumer Joan Farber shot the video with a Super 8 camera and a hand-cranked Bullocks for about $2,000, and Paxson campaigned to get the video played on SNL way before the days of digital shorts. So that's kind of groundbreaking of him. I actually had the good fortune of meeting Paxton about a year ago at Cannes, where he was promoting what would become one of his final films, Mean Dreams. We got to talking while I was waiting to interview the film's director, Nathan Morlando, for No Film School. Paxton was the warmest, most vivacious human being with an open mind and spirit. And the first thing he asked me was if he could share my cup of coffee, which was cold. So (laughs) he's not a diva. (laughs) He told me he always admired actors who also directed, like Buster Keaton, Robert Redford, and Clint Eastwood. And he also talked about how he got his start interestingly, in the art department, working for Roger Corman, because he was, quote, the only non-union filmmaker. In Cannes, Paxson regaled me with a love story that was the basis for his decision to take this particular role. In Mean Dreams, he plays an abusive father whose daughter runs away with her boyfriend, Jonas, to escape the situation at home. I so emotionally connected with Jonas because I had a similar situation when I was a young, younger man. Oh, really? Yeah, where I fell in love. My first love was a gal that I met in my hometown, but it was after I'd come back to my hometown. 
and uh, her family was very wealthy and very prominent, but her mother and father were were Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, drunks. It was like it was every night. It was, it was like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? And we we fell madly in love, and uh, very quickly I learned about her situation. You know, she'd call me up and I could hear some screaming and she'd go crying. She'd be crying on the phone, can you pick me up? We wouldn't have anywhere to go. We'd go and be good. So we would go out to a golf course, you know, go out and, you know, with a blanket, you know, and, uh, or, or something like that. We'd just go parking somewhere. And I, very quickly, this thing came over me about, you know, that I wanted to protect her. I wanted to get her away from these people. She was this beautiful thing that was just being marred by this situation. So that was the thing that really just just got went right to the core of my being. Again, it was this element, so really I played my first mother-in-law. Paxson also talked about how he studied under Stella Adler and became an actor after being rejected from film school. So I but I, I wanted to study and I but I wanted to but I, I wanted to go to film school. I had horrible SAT scores, so I got turned down by SC and UCLA. And I was thinking about going to England to study acting and getting into one of the program, night school programs and working over there and uh, as a waiter at the Hard Rock Cafe, actually. And I had that lined up. But I, saw, I found out about a program at NYU. It was the first year of the program where you could take academics towards an BA and also study at a professional school. So you'd have some classes at Washington Square and the others would be, so there was, certain, there was experimental wing at the, uh, you could study at Stella Adler's, Lee Strasberg, and Circle in the Square. And of all those disciplines, uh, Stella Adler was the one because, you know, she was Brando's teacher. Yeah, and, uh, legendary. Yeah, and so I took the course, although I was never a star in her class, she was very tough, very intense, and she was in her 70s, but still very fiery lady. And now we're going to turn to Charles Hayne for some gear news this week. Thank you, John. Uh, All right, so the first bit of gear news this week, DJI has announced a new Extreme Weather Matrix 200 series drone. So while the Matrix 200 is technically aimed at industrial use, we all know filmmakers love taking tools not designed for them and finding ways to use those tools to make amazing cinema. Um, So it's really focused more on like oil rig and power line uh, inspections, and it's like really weatherproof for hard weather applications. However, there are a lot of times on a film set that the weather goes bad and you got to land the drone and you would love to get cool shots. So we're all very excited to see filmmakers put the Matrix to good use. Now, with the Matrix 600, you usually you can fly an Epic with the DJI Ronin. And uh, so we're hoping to see some maybe Epic storm footage from an Epic camera. Yeah, puns. Um, crazy. But, of course, weatherproof your camera to match the drone before you fly it up there in crazy hazardous situations. I would never do that if I had a red. I don't think I would risk it. (laughs) I respect that. I would never do that if I owned one either. But that's what renting is for. Yeah, true. Next up in gear news, Sigma is expanding their art line of lenses. Uh, Sigma has expanded their popular art line of still lenses uh, with a new 135mm prime and a 14mm prime, both of which are T1.8. Sigma has confirmed they're going to turn both into cinema lenses. So the art line itself has been popular in still photo form with filmmakers. So it's exciting that these lenses are out and a lot of filmmakers are going to use them. And it's really exciting that they're going to be turned 
into cinema housing, which is, of course, going to come with more consistent focus control, longer focus throw, and a more durable body. That'll be really exciting to see. And then finally this week, SLR Magic expands their MFT lineup with an 8mm f4 wide-angle lens designed for drone use, but popular for anything. So MFT is a really exploding mount. The very popular Panasonic GH line uses it. Everybody loves the GH5. Um, But since MFT is newer, there's not as many lens choices yet. So it's always nice to see any increase in lens options, and the new SLR Magic will definitely find applications. It's an 8mm wide-angle lens, which is roughly equivalent to like a 16mm lens in a full-frame application. Opens to an f4. It's a manual focus lens. There's no autofocus, but that's going to be fine because an 8mm lens at an f4, your depth of field is huge. Uh, for instance, in, at an f4, if you set it to the hyperfocal distance, you have focus from like 8 feet to infinity. So for most of what you're going to do with this lens, the lack of autofocus is not going to kill you. It's really going to be great with DJI drones, which also use the MFT mount as a little screw so that you can set your focus, like hard set your focus so it doesn't drift with the camera vibrations. And uh, we're excited to see footage from this lens flying on a drone. Cool. Thanks, Charles. Thank you very much. If you work in video post-production, you know that shaving off a couple steps from your workflow can save you hours. Vimeo's new panel for Adobe Premiere Pro does just that. It lets you upload videos straight to your Vimeo account without even leaving Premiere. Plus, you can create video review pages and share them with as many people as you want. It's post-production simplified. Learn more at vimeo.com slash adobe dash panel. So on this week's Ask No Film School, Andrew Pugsley asked on our boards, how do I get or make fake tears on actors and what's the best lighting to highlight crying? Like, can I just use water, he asks? Should I mix something in that won't irritate the eyes? Do natural tears even show up on cameras that well? And if so, or if not, what are the ways to highlight them? So to help answer Andrew, I called up filmmaker Christina Beck, who's a triple threat, writer, director, and actress, who also happens to teach acting at the New York Film Academy. Well, here's the thing. I I will start off by saying that because first off and foremost, you know, to me, when we have emotion as uh, storytellers and certainly expecting our actors to exude some sort of emotional response to whatever circumstance that's going on, Ideally, you want it to be truthful, even even if it's in, you know, a comical situation, obviously in a drama or something that is um, emotionally charged. Um, so all that said, my experience um, as an actor starting off when I was a teenager, I was in a film called Suburbia directed by Penelope Spheris, and it's about a bunch of punk rock kids that are... Um, delinquents basically and so there's a scene that takes place in a funeral home and our best friend in the film had had died and so uh, we were all supposed to be crying in this funeral home um, scene so my best friend and I that were playing best friends in the movie um, there was a lot of different circumstances on set it was kind of a weird wacky day and the actor who played the girl's father um, who the girl who was supposed to be dead, her father, he, we just thought, I don't know, we, we couldn't stop laughing. We could not stop laughing. And it was oh, really no. a problem. Like, it was really a problem. 
And, you know, Penelope is great and was a, you know, team player. But at one point she looked at us and she was just like, you, you guys have to stop, you know, and she kind of yelled at us basically. And then honestly, that didn't even change things. It almost made it more crazy. So long story short, there was a makeup artist there and she had, you know, glycerin, which is, um, something that you can get, uh, you know, they, it's in a dropper and, um, and, like, usually you can find that um, at a beauty supply or especially beauty supplies, you know, in Hollywood or in New York. Or you can probably send away for it online, certainly nowadays. Um, and so she did a few drops of this glycerin. It's like a thick, clear liquid. And, um, you know, looking back on that footage of that scene, we just kind of, there was like, God help me, the 30th anniversary of that film. <laughs> Here in L.A. at, at uh, Cine Family, and I went to do the Q&A with Penelope, and we talked about that scene and a few other things. And, you know, that was shot on film. It it looked real. We were um, basically kind of sad looking because we just were trying to hold it together so badly. Um, but, uh, but that said, that's worst-case scenario. Best case scenario as directors, you know, to um, set up the circumstances for our actors to be able to feel safe and secure enough to let some sort of emotion arise is, is ideal. And then, honestly, I've also felt that tears aren't everything. You know, mm. there's this idea that tears, like the one teardrop going down the face, you know, really exudes some sort of... You know, it's been done a lot, quite frankly, and I see it now and I feel like it's very contrived. Um, I think personally what's more emotional for me to watch in a film is watching an actor not cry but, but, but you know, have some sort of other thing going on. Almost that, you know, I mean, I had an acting teacher once say, well, if you're so upset about not crying, let, let's feel that. Like, you know, let yourself feel that. That might just make you cry, you know? So it's like... Mm. There's a lot of different ways to go around it, but I do think, um, you know, ideally is to set up the circumstance, whatever it is, because I don't believe in sort of thinking about your dog that died when you were five years old. As an actor, that may work, might work once, but to depend on that every time is kind of creepy. Thanks for your question, Andrew, and thanks so much for your answer, Christina. And now for some indie film movie openings. Just arriving on VOD this past week is Off the Rails. It's now available to rent, buy, and stream online. It's a documentary directed by Adam Irving that tells the remarkable true story of Darius McCollum, a man with Asperger's syndrome whose overwhelming love of transit has landed him in jail 32 times for the criminal impersonation of New York City subway drivers, conductors, token booth clerks, and track repairmen. It's a crazy story. I interviewed Adam Irving almost a year ago before the film's world premiere at the Full Frame Documentary Film Festival, and it's gone on to play at a bunch of other prestigious fests, including Hot Docs and Doc NYC, where it won the Grand Jury Prize Metropolis Award. As you can imagine, Darius McCollum's story is so sensational that he's gotten lots of media attention over the years. In fact, no less than 27 documentary makers approached him to film his life story before Adam Irving did. In our interview, Adam talks about how he exchanged over 100 letters with Darius to build a relationship and get buy-in before starting the film. I found his dedication to this story inspiring. 
Now, Julia Roberts is slated to star as McCollum's attorney in a fictional screen adaptation being produced by the Gotham Group. So, you have to see the doc first. Who's playing Darius? It's a great question. I don't think that's been announced yet, but it's going to be a really meaty role for whoever whoever gets it. I think Julia Roberts should play Darius. <laughs> It'll be like a Kate Blanchett thing where she plays every character. A white woman playing a disabled black man. Oscar potential right there. <laughs> Amazon Prime Instant has got what we do in the shadows this Friday, which is I think the one of the hardest times I've laughed in the past, I don't know, 3 years. Yeah. Um, it's hilarious. It's just my type of humor, like really wacky and absurd and deadpan. Jemaine Clement and Taika Waititi made this vampire mockumentary back in 2015, and it's really hard to argue that there's been a better vampire movie or comedy since then. The film follows the lives of a group of vampires for a few months as they share a house in Wellington, New Zealand, and it turns out they've got a whole host of domestic problems just like you and me. Vampires, they're just like us. Yeah. (laughs) If you're not familiar with this New Zealand style of comedy, it's very deadpan, like I said, and Flight of the Concords is a good comparison point, considering it's really how both Clement and Waititi were brought to global recognition. Before this film in particular, Waititi and Clement also collaborated on a great indie called Eagle vs. Shark, which I recommend to you all. Since the release of What We Do in the Shadows, Watiti has made one of 2016's best films in Hunt for the Wilder People, which I think Liz actually decided was one of the best scenes, had one of the best scenes of 2016. Was it your favorite movie of 2016? No, but I included it in our uh, overview of what we thought were our favorite movie scenes from the year, because there's just some amazing gems in there. Yeah, it's really good. And Watiti is also crossing over to big blockbuster territory with Thor Ragnarok later this year. Wow, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> yeah, right. me neither. <laughs> uh, and according to John, the trailers for Thor look incredible. I wouldn't know because I haven't seen them. Well, yeah, they're like mini, so they're little mini shorts, really, instead of trailers. And they're in the exact style of like what we do in the shadows, sort of mellow mockumentary where Thor is just living with some IT guy and like none of the rest oh, of the Avengers. Oh, is it Stu from What We Do in the it's Shadows? It's not Stu, but it like, it's basically Stu. <laughs> well, um, poor Stu didn't make it. Yeah, so it's great. And another cool thing that I read about um, when I was first researching this uh, movie is that What We Do in the Shadows is actually based on a short that they made before they'd made anything else, before they'd made Flight of the Concords, before they made Eagle vs. Shark. This was like the first piece of content um, that they had on their minds. And then they got to make a feature out of it however many years later. And now on HBO, you can watch The Tuxedo. And this is a pretty unconventional choice compared with our usual indie film weekly fare, since it's not really an indie movie, and it came out in 2002. But since (laughs) Jackie Chan received an honorary Oscar at Sunday's award show, I thought this would be a good time to highlight one of his Stranger films. The Tuxedo is not necessarily a good movie, but it's definitely one of those movies that's so bad, it's pretty good. (laughs) I wouldn't even say it's so bad it's good, but you know, we get some classic early O's Jackie Chan cheeseball action as he plays a hapless chauffeur who must take a comatose secret agent's place using his special gadget-laden tuxedo. I'm so Jewish that I just kept thinking, how does he play a chauffeur? Oh. (laughs) I don't even, I don't know what that is. That's how not Jewish I am. (laughs) 
Basically, the tuxedo gives Jackie Chan superpowers. And the movie also stars Jennifer Love Hewitt. And both Jackie and Jennifer won the prestigious Favorite Male Butt Kicker and Favorite Female Butt Kicker Awards at the 2003 edition of the Kids' Choice Awards. So... If that's not enough to convince you to watch it, the film was also directed by Kevin Donovan, and it remains the only feature he has ever made to date. It's also the only movie you'll ever see Jackie Chan save James Brown from a fictional assassination attempt. So, if you have a night where you're doing nothing at all and you have nothing better to do, you know, watch The Tuxedo. One movie that is coming out this weekend in theaters that I've just been really excited about for I guess since I saw the first trailer drop because it was just so much different than anything else we'd seen out of the Marvel universe uh, at the time Logan is coming out this Friday yes and you know there's so many superhero movies that come out these days it's really hard to get genuinely excited about any upcoming releases in the genre but there are a few entries this year that could prove to separate themselves from the pack Guardians of the Galaxy, of course, will always be up there, but the first one that comes to mind is Logan. And yes, in an oversaturated scene of superhero movies, it's hard to imagine another X-Men movie being the one that would be different, especially if you consider the fact that Hugh Jackman has played Wolverine in eight different X-Men movies since he first took the role in 2000. For a series that is rebooted so many different times, complete with new actors, for all the original characters involved, it really says something that Jackman has always been the only one to ever play the Wolverine. So for that reason, the first major difference is that this will be Jackman's final time playing the character that pretty much made his career. Patrick Stewart also revealed that this will be his last time playing Professor Xavier in the franchise. What's most exciting, though, is that Logan is ditching the PG-13 vibes of the earlier installments and going for R. This is most important because it means they're not sacrificing any quality or censoring any deeper thematic material to try and appeal to a wider audience of teenagers. They're taking a risk and going the Deadpool route. Early indications are that this strategy has played off. The film is already certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes with a 93% fresh rating. It follows a weary Logan who cares for an ailing Professor X and a hideout on the Mexican border. But Logan's attempts to hide from the world and his legacy are upended when a young mutant arrives, being pursued by dark forces. The critics' consensus on Rotten Tomatoes is that Jackman makes the most of his final outing as Wolverine with a gritty, nuanced performance in a violent but surprisingly thoughtful superhero action film that defies genre conventions. Well, that is certainly in no way an indie film, but it's also the one that I'm most excited about so far this year. I'm definitely going on Friday. But also coming out on Friday, if you are in the mood for more indie fare, is As You Are. This film premiered at Sundance, where it won a special jury prize, and interestingly, it was shot with the combo of high eight and anamorphic, so it switches aspect ratios throughout the film. Dylan Dempsey interviewed the director, Miles Joris Parafite, who's only 24 years old, about this drama set in the early 90s. I like the way Dylan describes the film. Think Rashomon meets Jules A. Jim, but completely fresh, bewitching raw, and a first feature to boot. It's the telling and retelling of a relationship between three teenagers as it traces the course of their friendship through a construction of disparate memories prompted by a police investigation. Also coming to theaters March 3rd is Before I Fall, directed by Rai Russo Young. It just premiered at Sundance in January, and it was the director's third feature there. This one stars Zoe Deutsch, Halston Sage, and Cynthia Wu. 
It's a coming-of-age story with a mysterious premise. Zoe Deutsch plays a fatal car crash victim who's stuck reliving her last day over and over again for a week, giving her the chance to untangle the mystery around her death and discover everything she's in danger of losing. What really stuck out about this film to me is the high production values it achieved on a tight schedule and indie budget. It looks really stunning. I interviewed Rai Russo Young the day after the film Sundance premiere in a pretty noisy room, by the way, but here's some of what she had to say about how they achieved the look. Yeah, so the DP and I, Michael Feminari, um, always from the beginning wanted this film to look bigger, right? That was always the goal, is to make a movie that looked more like a studio movie, um, but with taste, not overlit, not pop colors. A lot of teen movies were always in the reds and were always overlit, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to exist in a moodier um, sort of more fog, wet down uh, world, which felt more indicative of, again, Sam's psychology. Um, and so part of that, we shot on an Alexa with anamorphic lenses. A big part of that was shooting on anamorphic, which added a sense of scope to the film. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was really the big thing. Some grant deadlines and festival deadlines coming up. Let's start with some opportunity deadlines for you guys this week. The IFP Filmmaker Labs has a deadline on March 3rd. There's a narrative lab and there's a documentary lab. And these IFP labs ensure that talented emerging voices receive the support, resources, and industry exposure necessary to complete, market, and distribute their first feature. So it's pretty comprehensive. It focuses on exclusively on low-budget features under $1 million, which I would consider to be the true version of indie, as we discussed last week on the podcast. So this highly immersive program provides filmmakers with the technical, creative, and strategic tools necessary to launch their films and their careers. IFP also has a Screen Forward Lab with a deadline on March 3rd. The IFP Screen Forward Labs are a year-long program and incubator for the creators of narrative-driven, serialized projects that push storytelling forward. A week-long intensive lab provides participants with the knowledge, resources, and mentor support necessary for developing pitches, securing financing, and finding unique avenues for the distribution of their groundbreaking work. Finally, on March 27th, we're giving you a little lead time because this one requires a little bit of work. It's the Moet Moment Film Festival, which is called a film festival, but it's really a contest nicknamed The Minis with a pretty hefty prize. Moet and Chandon Champagne, which I don't even know how to say because I'm not that fancy, is asking for your 60-second films on the theme of This Is Your Moment, and the grand prize winner gets $25,000 toward their next film, along with a trip to this year's Tribeca Film Festival and some industry mentorship with the contest's very impressive lineup of judges that includes Bryce Dallas Howard, Golden Globe-winning actress Gina Rodriguez, producer David Guillaud, and Tribeca Film Festival's VP of Shorts Programming, Sharon Badal, among others. So the deadline is March 27th, and it's only open to U.S. residents. Except for those in Rhode Island and Utah. Sorry, suckers. That is so random, but okay. I think because it's sponsored by a champagne, there's some alcohol-related regulations. Very interesting. Mormons. And now moving on to festival deadlines. The San Francisco Documentary Fest has their regular deadline on March 3rd. It takes place in San Francisco from June 1st to 15th this year, and it's been running for 16 years. Great festival. Another great doc fest is the Camden International Film Festival, whose deadline is also tomorrow, March 3rd. It's the early bird deadline, though, so you have a little time. This one we've talked about on the show several times. I love it. 
I love the festival and the people who run it very much. It takes place in Camden, Rockport, and Rockland, Maine in September. It's an Academy Award qualifying doc fest that showcases over 80 documentary feature and short films from around the world. The same week is held the Points North Documentary Forum, which provides emerging documentarians with opportunities for professional development and creative inspiration with lots of different programs and a big pitch fest. A festival that's close to my heart is the Napa Valley Film Festival, which has a deadline of March 3rd. It's because it's close to where I grew up. It's a very beautiful place, and it has a lot of artists that live there, including the Coppolas, who have a winery. Uh, So it's a weird little film mecca in California's Tuscany. This is the early bird deadline, March 3rd. It takes place November 8th to 12th in Napa Valley, and screenings are clustered in the walkable festival villages throughout Napa. It also, of course, has food and wine events, which is a must for that place. And it screens approximately 100 new independent films accompanied by sneak peeks of studio releases. You can win cash prizes of $10,000 if you win the U.S. Narrative Feature or Best Documentary Award. The Philadelphia Independent Film Festival has their deadline on March 8th. This is the late deadline, so if you live in Philly or in Pennsylvania, this is probably a good one to apply to. It's in its 10th year. It takes place from April 26th to the 30th. And the festival programs about 80 films a year across 12 genres and produces or sponsors yearly creative events. And they've been doing it since 1998. Doing it since 1998. So, hard to believe I'm saying this because time is just flying by, but we are heading to South by Southwest next week, one of our favorite events of the whole year. Let us know if you're going to be there too. We're actually co-hosting a filmmaker happy hour this year. Woo! I'm happy already. With the Candy Factory Films and Bid Slade, it's going to be on Tuesday the 14th at the Grackle on East 6th. So if you're going to be in town, hit us up with your email and we will send you an invite. We'd love to meet you. Before that, though, we'll have an interview podcast going live on Monday. Yeah, I actually did this interview at Sundance with somebody that I went to film school with who was there with Kristen Stewart's uh, directorial debut, which was a short film in Shorts Block One. Um, he started a production company, and while we talked about his film, we really talked about his production company and how it is to start a production company out of your grandparents' office in L.A. right after film school and then grow it into a successful endeavor that makes commercials and documentaries and short films for high-profile actors and directors. Yeah, so if you've ever wanted to start a production company, this might be a good one to listen to. Kristen Stewart approved. As always, we'll put links to all of the opportunities and festival deadlines that we mentioned in the post associated with this podcast, along with links to lots of the articles and topics we mentioned. And you can always go to nofilmschool.com to learn more every single day about the craft of filmmaking. Meanwhile, as I said at the top of the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever podcast program you use and rate us with those five stars. And stay in touch. I'm on Twitter at LizFilm. E.L. Booter. Jim John Jim. Jim. Happy 50th episode, guys. See you next week. 